sooner with the sermon. We are in our sermon series, Like Jesus. This is our, our post-Easter, Eastertide uh, series in which we are looking at uh, the early church. We're following some characters through the book of Acts and look at what it means for them to be like Jesus as the church um, and what it means for them to, to emulate and to follow, to live lives in response to the resurrected Jesus, right? And so that's where we are. This week's sermon is Friends Like Jesus. Last week was, was Bold Like Jesus. Um, and as we start out, let me ask you this. Have you ever been uh, someplace, work, school, new church, whatever, have you ever been the new guy? I think it's an experience we've all been able to relate with, you know, finding yourself the new kid on the block at some point, um, finding yourself having to hang tough, hoping you had the right stuff. Um, those who are laughing know the new kid's reference. I'm not even going to take time to explain it. Um, but have you found yourself in a situation where, where you're the new guy, the new person, and you feel a bit like an outsider, right? Being the new person can be isolating. It can play on your insecurities. It can make you wonder if you will ever fit in, if you will ever belong. Um, years ago, and, and many of some of you know this, I don't know how many of um, I have about a decade, a little over a decade's year worth of experience uh, in logistics management, distribution management, inventory control, and warehouses and, and distribution facilities. And years ago, um, I took a new job with a new company. Um, as we were opening, they were opening a new distribution facility. It was third-party logistics, so a company was going to pay my company to, to manage their distribution chain. And I was the new guy with the company. Most of the people in this new project were being pulled from other facilities in our company, other warehouses. And so they kind of all knew each other from years of working together. And I got hired in, and I was one of the new members of management that didn't know anybody else. And to make that even worse, when I did get hired on, um, they didn't send me to work right away. They sent me to different states uh, to be trained. And so my first week with the new company, I was in Ohio. Um, my third week with the new company, I was in Dallas, Texas, because they wanted me to get training to come back and bring the teaching back to the management team that I was now a part of. So not only was I knew the, guy, the new guy, but I was coming in as the site expert um, on certain things. And so it was, really, it was really awkward coming in to being the new guy to a group of people that had been working together, that had been doing the job, that had been a part of this company for a long time, and I was the new guy walking in saying, hey, this is how we do it. Uh, and I'm a bit introverted, and so it was an intimidating situation for me coming in as the new guy. Um, but then I had this coworker that I was going to spend a lot of time working with, and his name was Jeff. And when we started working together, it was, it was hard. Like, this was crazy. I mean, there was a season where we were working 100 hours a week plus, easy. Um, I worked a stretch of 31 days straight that was... 15 hours or more. I mean, it was crazy. To the point, like, the regional vice president told my boss that they had to give me a day off because they couldn't afford to kill me. Um, but it was, it was this really difficult time, and my coworker, he was the floor supervisor, his name was Jeff, and he started calling me brother. When he'd see me struggling or see me worn out or see me wrestling with stuff or being overwhelmed by the, the task at hand, he would come up to me and say, hey, brother, you're doing all right. We're going we're gonna to get through this together, brother. Um, and I'll tell you, in that 
in, in this moment, it doesn't sound like a whole lot, but in that moment, it meant everything. Um, it meant I felt like I was part of the team. I felt like I belonged. I was part of something that we were working together. He knew that by doing that, I was no longer seeing myself as the outsider. And so by calling me brother or by calling somebody sister at some point, that maybe somebody that's not related to you, um, it's a strong declaration that you belong, that you're a part of this. And so as we look at our, our scripture uh, story today from the, the book of Acts chapter nine, there's this moment where one character, one person calls another person brother. And it's, in Christian culture it could be a throwaway line. You know, I, there's some churches that call each other brother and sister colloquially. Like that's just the jargon they use. Well, oh, this is my brother's, like, you know. Uh, amen, brother, amen, sister, right? Like we, we, but in this moment, it wasn't religious jargon. It was, it was an important announcement of who they were to each other. It defined the relationship. So Acts chapter nine, verses one through 20, be looking for that word brother. Um, meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, meaning the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he was going along and approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored and then he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, 
wondrous spirit, gather our minds that they may be one with you. Open our ears that they may hear your word. Soften our hearts so that they may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. The scripture that we just read is often referred to as the conversion of Saul. Saul becomes Paul, right? And this is a, a, a famous story in the life of the history of the church. This is a, a big deal. If you're not familiar with it, um, Saul becomes Paul. Paul writes like two-thirds of the New Testament. Most of the letters in our New Testament is attributed to this man named Paul who once was Saul. Um, Paul becomes a Christian in this, after the story, right? He be, he's converted, he becomes one of the disciples, he becomes an apostle, he is sent. Paul goes on amazing missionary journeys. He goes across Asia and all across the Middle East. His, his missionary journeys are documented. If you have a study Bible, you can flip to the maps section in the back and you can trace. Like he didn't just like go down the street, he covered some territory with this gospel and preached Jesus all over the, this area um, that, used, that was the Roman Empire. Uh, he's imprisoned for his ministry because he's preaching about Jesus. He goes to jail, he suffers because of it, and yet he still keeps preaching about Jesus. He's one of the most influential people in all of Christian history. Like I said, he wrote letters to churches, he planted churches, he cared for the early church. Much of his writings has become foundational to our understanding of, of who God is. And so it makes sense to focus on Paul when we read the scripture from Acts. This is the conversion of Saul to Paul. But today we're actually gonna explore the story from the perspective of Ananias, the faithfulness of this follower. Saul was, according to the scriptures, breathing threats of murder. This doesn't sound like a nice guy. This is an enemy of the Christians. He had gone to the chief priest and gotten express permission to go and to arrest and to tie up and bring back people that were followers of the way, that followed Jesus. He'd been given this authority to go do this. He was, he was present when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he was present when Stephen was martyred just two chapters prior. His mission was to find Christians and make sure they got what they deserved for following Jesus. Saul was a legitimate threat to any and to every Christian. He was the enemy. And so when Ananias had this vision of the Lord instructing him to go see Saul, he obviously understands this is a dangerous mission. To go to this one that is looking for Christians, breathing threats of murder. Why would the believers... Ananias is part of the, the believers. He's part of the church. He's part of the Christian community. Why would, why would that group go and invite this Saul in? Like they're trying to hide from him. They're trying to avoid him. And yet this vision shows up. Ananias is called. He's given the mission to go and to find Saul and to bring him into the community. They have every reason to be afraid. Ananias has every reason to be afraid. He had every right to say to Jesus what he said. This man... He's threatened believers and he's done evil to the saints in Jerusalem. So what would you be thinking if you were Ananias? 
Like I said, we often read the scripture and we celebrate it because Saul became Paul, and this is such a great story of redemption and, and conversion, right? And this is something we can aspire to, we can celebrate. But if you were Ananias in this story, what would you be thinking or feeling right now? God appears to you in a vision and says, go to this one who's your biggest threat, the biggest enemy, go to that one. How quickly would you go knock on that door on Straight Street? (laughs) How quickly would you go and find this enemy that's breathing threats of murder against you and your church? What a strange mission God has given Ananias. But Ananias wasn't just imagining these words. It wasn't an idea he came up with himself. It wasn't something that was part of a, a, a vote. It wasn't part of a committee meeting. It wasn't something like, this is a strategy that we can implement to grow our church. It wasn't any of those types of things. This was not something that they came up with on their own. This was the resurrected Lord Jesus appearing to him and telling him to go to this house because God had a plan for Saul. Beyond the fear and the doubt that Ananias sure had, Ananias had been given a mission, a calling by God. But not only was God telling Ananias what to do, but God was also at the same time preparing Saul for Ananias. And, and us good holiness Nazarene folks, we label this as prevenient grace. This is God at work preparing people that, that don't know God, but preparing them to receive the good news. Putting them in a position to, to receive the, the invitation, right? God is at work in our communities. This is what we the Nazarenes call provenient grace. God is at work in all the wrong places, some have said. God was preparing Saul for Ananias' arrival. And so in faith, he goes to this place that Jesus told him to go and he enters this house. Again, put yourself in his shoes. How much faith would it take to do this? And so Ananias is now standing face to face with Saul who was thought to be an enemy, who was thought to be this threat and they're standing there together because the resurrected Lord Jesus orchestrated this meeting. (laughs) He put it together. He's put it on their calendar. And Ananias had to decide in this very moment, standing face to face with Saul, confronting this enemy of the church, this one who has caused so much evil and damage to to his community, to his church. He has to decide in that moment, standing face to face, how he's going to respond to Saul. This one breathing threats of murder. And that's when Ananias addresses Saul, who would later become Paul, one of the most prominent people in church. That's when Ananias speaks to him and he says, brother, brother Saul. And again, this wasn't religious jargon, This wasn't some sort of cultural thing where they just go, well, we called everybody brother. This was Ananias making a decision on the relationship that he was going to have with this one. His calling him brother meant that he was not viewed as an enemy. More than that, Saul wasn't just going to be tolerated or kept at arm's distance, he was going to be treated as a friend. He's going to be treated not as an outsider, not as an enemy, but as an insider, as a member of the family. When Ananias calls Saul brother, the scales fall off Saul's eyes and he can see again. What a beautiful picture. 
This conversion, this transformation that begins when Saul engages Jesus on the street. This one-on-one thing, this transformation, this conversion was completed when a member of the church accepted the mission that God had given it and went to Saul and said, you're my brother. The conversion is completed when Saul is invited to be a brother. The redemptive work that Jesus was doing in Saul, the calling that Jesus had for Saul was completed when Ananias called him brother. The work that Jesus was doing in Saul's life, the mission, the plan he had for him connected him with Ananias. Their paths crossed on purpose. God sent Ananias to Saul, but he also sent Saul to Ananias. This was Jesus' plan. And this is the truth that I want us to see in here today. The mission that Jesus calls us to, it connects us in a way that is more powerful than the things we think can separate us. Right? With, it's the mission uh, that Jesus calls us together to fulfill can unite us in such a way that it overpowers the things that we think separate us. That was true for Saul and Ananias 2,000 years ago. Their obedience to Jesus brought them together in a way that nothing else could. And 2,000 years ago, that was the truth, but it's also true for us today. The good news is God continues to create community and relationship around the mission that he gives his followers. God not only gives us new life, but with that new life comes new purpose and new calling. And with that calling comes the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit arrives and we receive gifts and abilities that empower us to do the thing that which we've been called to do. But here's the thing. None of that is meant to be done alone or in isolation from the broader community of faith. We live in a culture that is hyper-individualistic. We expect everything to happen to us as individuals. We read the scriptures as if God was speaking to us as individuals, which sometimes God is, but often God is speaking to his church. And so it's important for us to realize that God's will for your life today can only be properly understood if we grab a hold of what God's will is for our lives. Right? So many times people come and talk to their pastor and say, I don't know what God's will for my life is. I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do. And the answer always begins with, well, you have to first understand what God is calling the church to do. God is not going to create a mission for you that is different than the mission that he's already called and gathered the church to be and do. And the mission that Jesus calls us to connects us in a way that is more powerful than the things that we think separate us. A Google search tells me, just a quick Google search, this is not an in-depth theological thing, I just Googled it. The Bible has 59 one another passages. I just Googled one another in quotes, Bible. Uh, Love one another, wash one another's feet, be devoted to one another, live in harmony with one another, serve one another. These commands, these things that God is telling his followers to do can only be done in community. So as we gather around Jesus in response to his calling us, we find that we are not the only ones answering that call. The call that God places on each and every one of our lives creates a community. Jesus had a word for that community. That this community of people that had said yes to him and they find themselves gathered around Jesus and living together, he had a word for that community and he called it church. 
The word church literally means those who have been called out. It's not a collection of individuals who share a building on a Sunday morning. It's a community of sisters and brothers whose love for God compels them to love one another. And that's the good news. That's the the good news we can share with each other here today, and that's the good news we can share with our community. But here's the hard news. It's not bad news, but there's hard news that comes with this reality. The hard news is this. If you embrace the call that Jesus has placed on your life, you may find yourself part of a community with people in which you wouldn't normally choose to be in community with. There's such a a conversation about affinity and and cultural groups and sociology and all this type of stuff that's part of the church conversation today, and it's important. But the truth is that when we answer God's call in our lives, God will put us together in community with people that we might not have found ourselves in community with had it not been for Jesus. You might actually even find yourself in a community with some people that you'd rather not be in community with. (laughs) It's good that we didn't say any, any amens here. Um, that could be awkward. Uh, But like Ananias, you might find yourself face-to-face with a Saul. Somebody that in your mind, in your your cultural storytelling, somebody in your experience, you would label as other. You would label as enemy. You might find that the path that God is leading you on is a path that God is leading others on, and those others are different than you. God might be inviting you into a community of people who might see things differently than you do. For example, in the room today, we have, and I know this as a fact, some Republicans and some Democrats. Maybe even some independents. Worshiping together today. In this room today, I'm pretty sure we have people that were members of management and people that were members of a union. In this room today, we have blue-collar folks and white-collar folks. We've got baby boomers, millennials, those Gen Z folks. We have people that come from a variety of ethnic and cultural backgrounds. We have people in this room who think that the primary call on a Christian's life is to serve others. And there's other people in this room that think the primary call on a Christian's life is to understand proper doctrine and to believe and and to know the right things about God. In this room, we have people that believe both of those things to be the most important thing a Christian can do. There are even people here who support the University of Michigan and others who are Michigan State fans. We might even have some Ohio State fans in this room too. These things that can divide us, that that people use to define each other as other or as enemy, are present in our church. And honestly, they're present in every church around the world. So the question becomes, which attribute is going to be the one that defines our identity the most? Which is going to be the one that that creates the sense of community? What are we going to use? What perspective, what lens, filter are we going to use when we look and say, this is my enemy or this is my brother? Because it seems like the world around us has just reached the conclusion that those things that divide us cannot be overcome. There's there's just, there's no hope. 
The difference between us are too strong, they're too powerful, we're on fundamentally different sides, we're enemies. And the only thing to do with an enemy is to defeat them. If God is at work in my life, that probably means that God can't be doing something in the life of my enemy, right? If God is for me, if God loves me, if God cares about me, it must mean that God hates my enemy. My enemies are God's enemies. But this story of Saul and Ananias tells a different story. It reveals the gospel of reconciliation. It reveals a gospel where things can be reconciled, relationships can be made new around the identity of Jesus. Because God was at work in both Saul's life and Ananias' life. God was inviting both of them to participate in the mission of God. The resurrected Jesus appeared to both of them. God's grace and mercy was working in both of their lives. God gave them both a mission and it put them on the same path. It put them in the same room. And to be faithful to that which Jesus calls us to do requires that we, and I want you to grab a hold of this, and there's a slide here that, that this is the invitation for us today. To be faithful to the mission that God has given us as a church. To be faithful to reveal God's presence in our communities. This is the invitation. We need to set aside the things that we think separate us and enter into holy fellowship that reveals Jesus to those around us. Again, I know that there's a difference between being a Democrat and a Republican. I know there are fundamental differences there. I know there are differences between being a U of M fan and a Michigan State fan. There are fundamental differences. (laughs) And Jesus isn't asking us to be the same. He's asking us to be about the same mission. And so what Jesus says, you belong together. Who are we to say, no, we don't? This is, the the language of of, of marriage comes to mind here. What God puts together, let no one tear apart. No, let no one put us under. The truth is, what we do here together, church matters. I can't think of anything more important than being the church. And these divisions that, that could make us label each other as enemy distracts us from that work. Jesus has called you by name. He has called me by name. He has put us in fellowship together and asked us, invited us to love one another. Not only so that we have a place to belong, but so that the world can see Saul and Ananias. If Saul and Ananias can be friends, if they can be brothers, if they can be in fellowship, there is hope for everyone. So the invitation is set aside the things that we think separate us. Enter into holy fellowship that reveals Jesus to those around us. Or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. By loving those who are not like you, people see God revealed right in front of them. And this was the distinctive characteristic of the early church. They knew they were Christians by their love. This set them apart from every other group, from every other people. The church would gather together Greeks and Jews, Gentiles and Jews, rich and poor, men and women, slaves and free, and they would call each other brother and sister because they all had the same father. But they didn't just talk like that, they lived like that. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion meal was the distinctive practice of the early church. It tore down all societal boundaries to sit at a table with those that the society said you shouldn't sit at a table with. A slave shouldn't sit at the table with the slave master. Men and women shouldn't be in the same space. Gentiles and Jews should not sit around the same table. Rich and poor were not in the same status, the same category. And yet Christians said, those do things, those shape our experience, that shapes our world, but in the church, that's not how we identify. Some of the harshest things that Paul writes to churches is critiques and criticisms that the rich were eating too much at communion and leaving the poor without. Those that had privilege and status were using that position to abuse that position and those who didn't have it were getting left out and behind. They didn't just talk like they were families. They lived that way or at least they tried to. It was messy. It wasn't perfect. But the, the, the communion meal was the distinctive practice in a culture where there were so many things that should have divided them, so many labels that should have kept them apart. They were able to gather together around a table and call each other brother and sister. The followers of Jesus surprised the world by sharing a table and a family meal in such a way that everyone was equally welcome. The mission that Jesus calls us to connects us. The mission, this identity of being followers of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, it connects us together in such a way it's more powerful than the things that we think separate us. And so the invitation for us today is to set aside the things that we think separate us. Enter into a holy fellowship that reveals Jesus to those around us. And we're going to do that today right now. I mean, I hopefully you do that throughout your week. That you find ways of pushing back on the narratives. That you find yourself not falling into the traps of our culture. That you're a little bit less quick to call somebody an enemy or label them as other. And hopefully you do that throughout the week and the month and all that. But we're going to do it right now. We're going to do that through the communion meal. As different people, as different identities, as different cultural backgrounds, as different political philosophies, as all the different things that could separate us, we're going to put all that aside and say we're going to come to the table of Jesus together.